0: Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for
1: tuning in. Giving these kids the access to be able to think for themselves and solve problems for themselves and create a level of metacognition cognition so they're able to think about being a better thinker. You could do judgments on the relationship you have with yourself, but the key relationship any child should have or any adult should have is the relationship they have with themselves. It's hard resilient because unless you've lived it, you're not going to be able to get out of that little rut that you're in. So you've got to give people the space to learn to be resilient. And if you've got people around you that love you and support you, you're more likely to bounce back a little bit quicker.
0: Welcome to the Elevate podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher, and educational mentor, and I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for young girls, signifies. I cannot wait for you all to meet my guest today, who is, wait for it, an author, an executive mindset coach, a leadership trainer, keynote speaker, an elite development mentor within professional football, education, and business, a former academy footballer, a vice principal teacher, and the author of the successful book, Educating Football, a book that challenges thinking on teaching, learning, leadership, and elite sport. He is currently working with the England under 15 national squad and supports Premier League and Football League players with mental conditioning. He has spoken about his book and his work on several platforms, including the iconic high-performance podcast, BBC Radio 5 Live, Talk Sport and Love Sport Radio. He's featured on a Netflix documentary, which entails supporting world-class athletes with his work who needed cognitive and technical performance advice. He says his life's passion are education, leadership, and sport. After eight years as a footballer for Brighton and Hove Albion Football Club, he pursued a career in education himself. Notably, he was shortlisted for the National Teacher of the Year Award in 2008, having worked in four large inner London secondary schools where he also coached and mentored his colleagues. I was first introduced to my guests, impressive work after my husband heard him on the High Performance Podcast. All credit to my husband for this wonderful connection as he came home after listening to it on his run and his exact words to me were, you have to listen to this interview. It is just like listening to you talk about education. Actually, he is you in male form. Well, that tickled me to no end. And of course, I was completely blown away after getting to know more about my guest, the all-inspiring Steve Salas. I cannot wait to get stuck into our conversation. A very warm welcome to you, fantastic Steve. What an utter joy to finally have made this conversation happen. We've been planning it for a while, but lo and behold, we are finally here.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I'm very sort of humbled by your intro.
0: Oh, fantastic. Thank you again. Now, I know, I just said what my husband said, but I know for sure, bless him, that we're not really exactly the same because nor have I achieved or accomplished anything like you have already in the time that you've been in education. But I think where my husband was correct in his analogy was how much shared passion we have for helping young folks with the skills that we believe and I think know to matter the most. One of the things I was most interested with your work was how much work you've done in schools with special measures. I think you've done two, haven't you? And each of them over a five-year period were successes and graded as outstanding and good within two or three years, respectively. I would love to know if you could share with us what helped bring on such positive feedback, what type of mentorship and support were teachers provided with that could bring that on?
1: I think when you go into a new school, we do something like called a gap audit. So you do sort of the strengths and weaknesses audit of the school already. I think a lot of um, educational leaders are um, are miles off it. I think, you know, from my my style that I'm probably not going to hold back on this podcast about the reality of what goes on. If you go and do a gap audit, there's often people in schools, uh, in failing schools that are really good, that have just previously been mismanaged. And you get that in any Mm -hmm. business, don't you? Some Some new managers come in and they just have a big cull and get rid of everybody. So I think I think the key to great leadership in the first instance is 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 being sophisticated with your behavior. I think it's being a great listener. I think it's understanding basic stuff like learning people's names. And then the final thing really, without, without strategy, you're absolutely doomed. Um, and the key to strategy and operations, what I mean by that is is what it looks like in the classroom every day is, is making sure you're measuring it accurately. So when you're doing your gap audit, it's doing a, an audit on the staff, you know, not in a rude way, sort of do a top, middle and bottom. You know, who are your high achievers? Who are your ones that maybe need support and who are your less able staff that, that, that might need help? Because, you know, a lot, of, a lot of staff are ridiculed, but actually, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, they're just not managed properly.
0: Mm. You mentioned good leadership, and I love the fact that we're already onto such an important topic, which is a question I have for later in the interview. But whilst we're talking about it anyway, I'd love to know which leaders you admire and which leadership styles you've actually really aspired to emulate or they resonate with you and why.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, I, I love my one-liners, don't I? But, like, we, not me is, is something I swear by. And, um, you know, the balance between autocratic and democratic, I think, is is fine lines. I think if you're trying to keep everyone happy in leadership, then you're going to make everyone unhappy. But you've got to accept that you're going to make people unhappy. Um, people um, below, I think, to be a great leader, you also sometimes got to be a great follower. Educating people on, on also the loneliness of leadership as well, because lead, leadership can be quite lonely. So I don't really have anybody that I I I really aspire to. I mean, John Maxwell, someone I followed over the years around leadership. But I was, you know, the, the, I was speaking yesterday to a head teacher friend of mine, and I said, like, like for me, Rita, leadership's really, really quite straightforward. And people think I'm not afraid yeah. of saying this. But if you write a list of how of ten things about how not to lead right if everyone did that and then you just did the opposite of that you're halfway there aren't you
0: (laughs) yeah like that simplicity is obviously the key to lots of things in life but sometimes we do overcomplicate some of these things and I I don't know about you I find teachers notorious for taking things to a level that we don't need to and if we could just simplify everything including leadership it would be a lot
1: easier to follow and I've got some great methodology on that I mean my, my my content for my business is a game changer. I'm, I'm you know I'm very confident, not in an arrogant way. I'm very confident that it changes lives and something as simple. If I went back into schools now, you know my first teacher training day or my first meeting with staff would be everything we say between seven and five is always professional, never personal. So it just means that obviously if I say it once, that's not going to have an impact. But if you've got middle middle managers saying it and we've got staff on the ground level saying it you know, and you can even say it to kids, you know, everything I say is always professional never personal. The This type of cultural language is, is um, if used uh, rigorously, is the game changer. So again, like you've got to underpin this with, with strategy, because without strategy, when I say that, you know, you're doomed.
0: That's a really good reminder. I like the idea of thinking about your time zones being professional, not personal. I think that's a good way to get into headspace as well. But I wondered if we should start talking a little bit more about your own childhood. Let's go back to young Steve, particularly in your teen years, and what type of learner you were as a child.
1: I was a difficult child, to be honest. I was fiery. Um, I was the youngest of two. Uh, My brother now is a head teacher, actually, in Malaysia. He's um, head of Tembi International Schools over there yeah I was sort of bottom set at school but that was an issue. Yeah labeled very early in my life which was an issue which is why I'm obsessed with non-labeling. You know we're not a thing, you know we're not we're not a, we're not a color on a psychometric test. We're a human being that has the ability to learn, grow and evolve, adapt and change. So I think labeling in schools, you know let's apply this to the parents listening, oh they come and they say oh Steve my son's top set. Oh yeah but they might not be top set in in Asia or Africa or Canada or, or London, because your kid might be top set in your town, but they probably won't be top set globally. So there's always a perspective and a context to, to labels, isn't there? And would you rather your children be the top set of the comprehensive school or middle bottom set of the grammar school? We've got to be very careful um, as parents and educators that we, we put our kids into a place where they can have a fulfilling life And remember, based around what they want to do, not what we want them to do. So projects I've got going on in in the UK, I've hit like 40,000 kids this year. I just drive the kids' mad about, don't do what your parents want you to do. Do what you want to do. Okay, what am I going to do? And I'm like, okay, well, you've got to connect what you're brilliant at to get paid and get a pound note out of it. What it does do is sow the seed. And I suppose, with me, to my evidence for this, is I'm still mentoring people in their 20s and 30s that have had five careers and still don't know what they want to do. So... I back myself to know that I'm, I'm sowing seeds early, and we don't want to be reactive to to a, a good life. Why why not be proactive about it?
0: Everything you've just said there completely resonates with me. Even talking about settings and labelling children and what it is, what did you find it did for you personally when you said you know you explained earlier you were put in bottom set and there was no real evidence based on it and look at what you're doing today that's the part of what i think affects a child so deeply is giving them a rank at such an impressionable time in their life and that allowing them to be their identity for what they think they're capable of for years to come
1: well i went home and said to my mum am mum, I thick she said as mums do no you're not thick son you're the apple of my eye so you're still in that headspace where you're labelled as brainy or you're labelled as thick. And obviously, you know, it's important for listeners to know. And then went on and fulfilled self-fulfilling prophecy, then failed on my GCSEs. Um, And then, um, yeah, my parents separated when I was 14. And, um, you know, no boy wants to see their dad leave home. Um, And I know, obviously, I'm close to my mum as well, but I was particularly close to my dad at that age because my dad was majorly sporty. And And then my mum went to uni at 40. You now at the time, I'm not conscious of oh yeah, I'm going, home cooking dinners for myself. But I don't think most fifteen year olds cook dinners for themselves for four years, do they? At the time, I didn't think of anything of it. If I'm entirely honest, it's only only later on, and when I went to uni, where I you know suffered a bit of anxiety and a bit of sort of separation anxiety about well, what's going on in my life and how do I overcome this. So yeah, after the third GCSEs, so I basically did retakes. Um, got got eight, which was which was really good. And obviously at the time I was playing for Brighton um so i signed full-time plan for them as a football player and then um yeah it was the only football of my generation to really go then go on and do some a-levels so my a-levels is important the parents know it's my levels were absolutely crap but they got me into uni. you know yeah i found the love of learning it's the most important part of the story really i found my love of learning at uni
0: it, well of course and, and but what gave you the motivation and the drive to want to do the a-levels or even apply
1: to university then if you were because my dad used to drive me mad and say to me, "Don't do what I do," which was, you know, smashing holes through walls on a on a ladder because he was a plumber. That was my brother. There was a bit of embarrassment for my failed GCSEs. There was, there was me wanting to go and work in sport, um, you know, because I was sports mad as a kid. And, uh, and by the way, I was never, I was never naughty at school. I was just a little bit lost. Never a bad kid. I mean, I was sports captain, which meant you had your photo outside the head teacher's office. So, but academically, I was just not interested at all in right how mad is education that we've got issues with literacy and then we're telling kids what books they have to read for english and if you don't fit into that level of poem sort of in terms of that then you don't pass your gcc i mean that's just weird isn't it Uh, why would we not ask a kid to read a book of their own choice and then go and write a transcript on that like so yeah this education system i'm not shy i call them exam factories um, they are exam factories and we know there's some brilliant teachers out there changing lives but at the same time you know we do need a reality check on what we're trying to do and i'll and I back that up by bristol uni you know had 12 suicides in a year right so i do try and back up my statements with with evidence that you know these parents are sending their kid to a russell group uni for them to end life so we we need um to really get some perspective about what we're trying to achieve
0: yeah completely and i think you've led me on beautifully to my next question which was going to ask you about what is lacking in the curriculum I think you've just mentioned a little bit of that bit of autonomy a bit of choice giving children drive possibly to be interested in taking control of their learning are parts of a solution what else do you think is missing and how we can how can we improve that for schools
1: yeah if we look at modern work most great businesses are after good people rather than a real technical skill base we know that, you know, it wouldn't be brilliant if we did a GCC in character development, but we don't. If we did a GCC in entrepreneurialism, but we don't. We're institutionalised by ourselves in education. We just keep doing the same thing because we've always done it that way. Yeah, this is just a place where people like ourselves really need to, uh, I call it zooming in and zooming out in my book. We need to zoom out and say, hold on, let's get some context and some perspective for what we're actually trying to do. And if you look at the statistics now, modern work, I think it's 80% of jobs in 20 years won't even exist. So yeah, we need mental agility. Mental agility is the words that I like to use.
0: Yeah, I love it. And one of the things that you've said in the past, which I loved and it's completely resonated with me, was why aren't we having GCSEs and things like character? Can you talk to me a little bit more about that and why you think, Looking at building a whole picture of a child and teaching them about character would be something that would do the whole world a lot of good, including the youngsters that we're bringing up.
1: I mean, you could make it, this is my point, you could make it exam-based. like You, you could make it so creative, but I'm not saying just do you know, a non-exam in character development. You could do judgments on the relationship you have with yourself. But the key relationship any child should have or any adult should have is the relationship they have with themselves when does that ever get mentioned and, and what is it and, and how do we grow it and why do we need to do it you know the what the how's the, who's the why it's like and then and then the relationship you have with other people you know all work really from Howard Gardner if, if the listeners aren't aware of Howard Gardner I mean he's guy's a game changer wrote a book I think in the 70s called Multiple Intelligences so a lot of my work is is based around research you know pedagogy and methodology from from people that have really Uh, change the game in education
0: yeah no and I love I love the fact that you think about all of this and you think about a, a wider picture like the zooming out you just mentioned but what I would love to know for you is what are the ways that teachers and parents can do a better job at preparing our youngsters for the real world and maybe you can draw on your own example because Like you said, you failed your GCSEs, you didn't do brilliantly at your A-levels, you went to university and you still have a fantastic career, by all accounts. What is it that limits parents or children from taking risks and not doing the conventional style of learning?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm not going to parent bash, but I'm hopefully going to really educate parents right this second. Parents' evenings shouldn't be called parents' evenings, they should be called pupil evenings. Like you're treating your kids like they're about five when they're about 11, and you're treating them like they're, like they're 11 when they're 18. Stop interrupting your children. Let them become critical thinkers and higher order thinkers. Let them have the speaking and listening ability to be able to articulate how they feel without interrupting them every 20 seconds. So you love your kid, but you're just loving your kid in a majorly wrong way. And then your kid gets to 22 and they're still ringing Mum and Dad going, Mum, like, can you help me out here? Like, no. So yeah, I'm pretty blunt about it. Like parents evenings are painful. You just have to tell parents, stop talking over your child.
0: I, I completely understand what you're trying to say. And it's, it's that kind of strange notion that, because what you're doing is assuming that whatever your child says is a reflection of you as a parent. So should they say anything that you wouldn't have taught them or want them to say that reflects badly on you as a parent? So there's this strange cycle. Of, of things that go on. And I think breaking that and allowing your, your children to be people and, and, and actually stop throwing your own expectations onto your children. I think that would be my biggest hope for, for, for our future is that many, many parents have dreams for their children. And I don't say you shouldn't, but I definitely think it's important to look at the child that's in front of you and parent the kid that you've actually been given as opposed to the child that you think you've created.
1: You know, I said on the High Performance podcast, wouldn't it be brilliant if all parents did this? Your son or your daughter comes in and says, Mum, Mum, I need some help. Wouldn't it be brilliant if Mum just went, well, I'll tell you what, Jenny, go upstairs, have 24 hours to think about three potential solutions to this problem and come back to me tomorrow. But what Mum, not in a rude way, or Dad ever does that? Giving these kids the access to be able to think for themselves and solve problems for themselves and create a level of you know metacognition so they're able to think about being a better thinker.
0: Yes and breaking that curious learner's mindset as you mentioned earlier down for them and helping them get those skills because one of the reasons I created Elevate was for that exact reason I just feel that when they get to adult age we expect children who have not had any formal education in empathy or resilience or emotional intelligence in leadership roles with EQ but many kids need to be taught the idea of listening, the idea of how you actively listen, how do you actually learn to put yourself in other people's shoes so that you can have empathy. And I think these things are the things that we can role model more at home, at school. But like you said about giving your child 24 hours, it's not a natural gut reaction for a parent. It's something that when they're toddlers, they fall over. And the first thing you want to do is kiss it better, make it better, put a plaster over it. But somehow that Act of being the solution-oriented parent doesn't stop until I don't know what age. I'm not even sure. I know parents that are doing it for kids that are married with kids too.
1: Yeah, and listen, uh, we've also got to respect that we've all got different lenses on the world. Now that's major Mm -hmm. part of my business model. That I don't see the world how you see the world, and you don't see the world how people see the world. So we've got to be respectful of that. But I mean, I've taught 40,000 kids, so I've got a little bit of experience about. Uh, what kids' success is and what isn't. And I suppose my advantage is that, because I'm le- based in South London, you know, linking back to that character development stuff, learning empathy, soft skills, you know, emotional intelligence is the most underrated skill that's going to be required in the modern world.
0: Yeah, and we haven't moved on in it in terms of the way the world has moved on, I feel, to equip the children, possibly with the right attributes. And that's where I think... My hope with Elevate is to try and lift these kids so that they start to see the world a little bit more with the skill set that's going to help them achieve the goals that they've set out to achieve. And I think that one thing I wanted to sort of speak to you a little bit more about was when you are a sports person as you are, and then you've had a career change. And so you've had you're a really shiny example of someone that isn't pigeonholed into anything. You do great work for kids in schools, but you also do a lot for young people on the sports pitches, I would love to know how the two align and what you've learned from both and how they complement each other
1: mm, I think all of my skills are from education people see all the glory now on Instagram and all that stuff I mean last week i was I was at the emirates for fifty five thousand fans and it was like you know imposter syndrome what am I doing here but um
0: did you really
1: yeah it was it was crazy so it's just about high performance isn't it it's about adding value to your toolbox but the most important thing I want to share with people that are listening is to be the best version of you not the best version of Steve sure. Salis or the best version of Ramita. it's the best version of you so it's it takes wisdom to be able to do that the child is the best version of themselves we need to connect teaching and learning I think we need to connect assessment for learning I think we need to connect behavior for learning I think we need to connect, you know, my future self. What does your future self want to do earlier? Have conversations earlier. And then really, I suppose my job is, is piecing things together. So I think that, you know, my work is very bespoke for my clients. I work with, you know, teenagers mentoring now, I work with adults mentoring, I work with professional footballers mainly. But it's piecing it together. So, for example, in the football industry, we talk about the four-corner model so here we go i'm gonna i'm just gonna read out a text message i sent to the wimbledon players and we lost last night three 0 so i said um uh, the physio talked about reflection and relentlessness so i just said on this note be relentless as a learner the best athletes are obsessed with it one what went well two even better if regarding your performance and break this down into the four areas technically tactically physically and psychologically we're not just saying just get better at performance you know breaking that that down into the four corners as a footballer it means that we can have more specific conversations around what the technical tactical physical or psychological detail is and it doesn't just become vague you know loose conversations where you come away from a conversation with steve Salas and you go what did you learn i go i don't know well no my i suppose my art is is really breaking down the learning process so people can eat this stuff for breakfast.
0: I think having tangible, clear guidance like that from a mentor makes a huge difference. Yeah, for sure. Which kind of takes me on to my next point, which is your company solutions mindset, which aims to support and help professionals work more effectively and maximize performance potential. Love it. As I'm a firm believer of lifelong learning and keeping a learner's mindset, which we've just touched on, being open and curious about ways we- in which we can enhance and interact with young people. Now, you just mentioned technology in football, but how do you feel technology has affected this growth? And what ways do you feel relying on technology to learn is healthy?
1: Yeah, always a balance to be had. I'll give you an example. We call it opinion or fact in my book. You know, there's a lot of people with opinions, got to do this, got to do that, or that player worked really hard. Now now we've got the raw data. So we know how far, you know, I've just had the spreadsheet from the strength and conditioning coach, and we've got how far they run in terms of different distance covered. You know, that's objective. We've got high-intensity sprints. That's fact. So it means that we, again, don't get that grey area of, oh, I thought they worked hard. Well, what does that actually mean? They did work hard or they didn't work hard? Technology now has changed the game in elite sport. But I, I say this in my book again, that, uh, you know, schools are data-rich, system-poor. So, you know, that obviously I'm linking this to technology. That was the question that you asked me. But I just, yeah, I'm just... I'm very mindful that technology, we've got to grow with it. You know, most parents are moaning that their kids have been on their phones, but it's not the kids' fault they were born into technology, is it? The parents are the one that gave them an iPad and a mobile. So, you know, again, parents, look at yourself. And also, it's about adapting. I say to kids all the time, if you're going to be on your phone, I don't care, but make sure you're fueling your brain with really positive messages. Don't follow anyone on Instagram that's negative energy. Don't follow anyone on TikTok that's negative energy. If you're going to be on your phone, I'm cool with that, but just don't follow crap.
0: Mm. do you give them examples of people to follow
1: uh yeah a few people yeah i mean like particularly i, mean, I do a lot of work with boys um so yeah like you know gary vee's you know i say all age groups gary vee can, can really nail it you know um ed wyler you know my footballers that i support abira as jude bellingham they're all sending really positive messages all the time and um know That's where we can use technology to our advantage because these kids have now got access to people that they would never had access to.
0: Yeah, no, it's exactly what I keep telling in my webinars about how we can use technology as a force for good and how we can amplify our voices because it can do and bring so many people together like you and I are today over technology. But I think sometimes we get lost in some of all the stuff that can help that actually amplifies or brings on low self-esteem and mental health issues that which... Obviously, it we can, we're seeing with young girls, particularly, but boys too. But on that note, I wanted to ask you now a little bit more about what you think about failure. How do you view it and why do you feel obstacles can, or how do you feel that we can help young people see obstacles as being helpful?
1: I'll start with this one. I've applied for something called the FA Technical Directorship, which would may be a you know, technical director at a football club, and I, I got turned down for that a couple of weeks ago. Um, so, yeah, no, it is what it is. Um, I had references to allow me to get on it, but still didn't get on it. So, you know, when I read the email, I was a bit, I don't know what the word is. I, don't, I wasn't upset, but I was a bit peeved. But then, what are my choices? My choices are I was in a school the next day. My choices are give my energy to those that want it. So, I love my one liners you know, you never lose, you either win or learn. Um, there's no failure, there's only feedback. You know, wouldn't it be brilliant if the word failure didn't even exist by the way just didn't exist you know oh, what's your feedback score but we don't we just use this word failure and then you know you know what I'm like with language you know me well enough language is such a such an important tool to be able to gain perspective um, so yeah failure is is something we need to embrace all standard stuff around Carol Dweck growth mindset but um, you know I, I still, still I still walk into schools in the UK and people don't even know who Carol Dweck is like absolutely bizarre it just sums up schools really they're just obsessed with no zooming in and they're not zooming out and seeing what what pedagogical approach is out there i think failure is about is about seeing it absorbing it reflecting on it learning from it and yeah i I suppose when when you get to 44 which i am you don't you don't worry about failure too much really because i've had a mad three years of success so i'm I'm very blase about it because I don't think you can let it affect you. But what I'm trying to say is I think I've learned to be like that. It's not something, you know, that I was born with. You you learn to have thick skin when you get older.
0: you're Right, which leads to the whole idea of resilience probably a little bit. But the, I think when you're young and you're, you're right, you're absolutely correct in saying that it's something that we can learn and build towards. So you're one of the things I think I've just picked up on is your self-talk to yourself, the ability to take this email, reread it, think about the messaging behind it, and really, what it says about them, not you, which I think is important for youngsters. I really do. But how do we make them understand those steps when they are in that preteen, teen year time?
1: It's oh, tough, isn't it? You can't go to Boots Chemist and buy a two for one pack of resilience, can you?
0: No, I wish we could.
1: <laughs> so, again, like it's hard resilience because unless you've lived it, and you're not ever, ever going to be able to get out of that little rut that you're in. So you've got to give people the space to learn to be resilient. But again, that links to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, of safety and belonging. And if you've got people around you that, you, that love you and support you, you're more likely to bounce back a little bit quicker. Yeah, I mean, I spoke at head teachers conference last week, East London Head Teachers and I and I gave them an example of resilience about, about bouncing back quickly. One of the heads, she was lovely. She came home to I love your presentation. There's one thing I don't agree on. And she said, What's that? You know, I was cool with it. Really good, really healthy discussion. And she said, I don't believe, I don't believe about bounce back quickly. Because there's loads of people in our communities in you know, poor, poor areas in East London that, that are just absorbing crap all the time and they can't bounce back quickly, but they're still resilient. And do you know what, Ramita, I was <laughs> like, wow, like great, great discussion and really fair feedback from that head teacher.
0: Yeah, that's really nice reminder for all of us it's privilege sometimes that we're born into and don't even realize that we don't have to think about certain things that other people have to think about in terms of being able to bounce back but I suppose one of the things that I've wanted to dig a little bit deeper on is this idea of leaning into that fear or leaning into those uncomfortable moments or leaning into those moments of truth which is yes I failed at something or I've I agree with you, I hate the word failure, and I think it should be eradicated, but I have had a setback of some sort today. In that moment, rather than throwing all your toys out of the pram or having a meltdown or, or going the other way, which is quite usually, for teens anyway, because of their emotional side of development at that point, sometimes I wonder if we haven't done enough to celebrate children for all that they have achieved, rather than focusing on what they just didn't achieve. And I wonder how we can reframe that.
1: Oh, it's it's a really good question. I think it goes back again to a lot of the research I said, Like, what's the point of being really brainy if you haven't got any mates? What's the point (laughs) of being really rich if you're in a big house and you're lonely, you're on your own? So I think it's a little bit of Buddhism, isn't it? It's a bit of socialization. We're, We're on this planet to have people around us and energy. You know, you give love, you get love. You give hate, you get hate. So, I think it's normalising. I say the word normalising to every single client every week, about normalising the process of failure. And, you know, never too high, never too low. So, we're at Wimbledon, for example. We've lost three games on the trot, four games including Arsenal. Um, We've gone from 8th in the league to 14th in the league. And the key now is to maintain sound emotional control because this is what a league sport does. So, We never get too high when we win and we never get too low when we lose. It's about following the process. And the process is, there's lots of controllables and lots of uncontrollables, meaning that we could be, here we go, this is a great one, we could be an eight out of 10 um, for one match, but if we meet a team that's nine out of 10, then we lose one nil. And then we could be maybe a six out of 10 one week, so we're really poor, but we just catch a team that are five out of 10. And then we win one nil. Then everyone goes, oh, look at them, what a great result, but actually we were rubbish. So we've got to be so careful with process and outcome, because outcome. Oh, I got an A grade, or I'm top set, or I got nine out of ten in your maths test. All right, well, you got nine out of ten, but the test was like for five year olds, and you're eleven. You know, I'm being a little bit sarcastic here. Let's just have some perspective yeah. about what we're all trying to do.
0: Yeah, here, here to that. What would you say to a child or an athlete, an aspiring athlete, for example, who feels that they're not naturally gifted?
1: Yeah, that's probably the talent and commitment scale. Um, You know, some players are high in talent and low in commitment. Some players are high in commitment and low in talent. Some players are high in talent and high in commitment. Some players are low in talent and low in commitment. So, yeah, it's just playing around with that. And I think, again, I'm not, um, I suppose I'm working with, you know, the elite uh, of the elite in pro football now, but when I was a school teacher, I had a school team that were like, you know, really average. So I'm not going to drive them mad like trying to win games when the whole point is is learning and development. But when I'm working at first team level, you know, our, our KPIs are to win. So different hats all the time, um, you know. And when I talked about mental agility, that's what I mean. I don't act the same way, you know, with with a class that I do with an adult class. It just it's about adaptability to the environment, right?
0: I suppose you, your job relies a lot on the children and the sports people trusting you and taking your advice and and really leaning into you and I think teachers and coaches that is their biggest win because they spend a number of hours a day with their students and their children that they've got more than most parents do these days if we're not in a pandemic and homeschooling but even so your teacher your coach your your mentors become your go-to people what are the steps that we can take or what can we do to help children build that
1: trust with I think, yeah, in summary, you know, when you've got your children, you know you're going to have them for a long time. So, therefore, you've got a chance to coach quite a lot. When you chuck in with a nugget here and a nugget there is, you know, to scaffold it and help them is is knowing when they're, you know, when I call it stress and safety. So, how much stress do you put on your kid and how much safety do you put on your kid? And trying to meet that pinch point in the middle is a fine line, isn't it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It is a fine line. It's tough. But let's talk about your book then a little bit because Educating Football – does touch on some of this could you give me some more ideas or some distill a few top level summary points of the book that might help those in the classroom those on the sports pitches what you do in your current role and how we can apply it basically to life because it's not just about football that book
1: no i was cheeky i just put football on the title to sell some copies to be fair (laughs) i don't don't sell it on amazon either because amazon takes 70 percent, and i like to sign every book so someone's going to spend 20 quid on my book i want to sign it and um yeah i've sold four thousand books around the world now so it's been it's been really well received it's the most non-football football book ever written basically so it's about life and developing people um and i said yeah just put football in the titles sell a few copies but um you know you probably learnt from my style in today's podcast i'm not shy and saying how it is you know, nutty parents on the side sport parents it's got a chapter on stop interrupting let them finish all the people that i've met on my journey that just don't listen to anything that you're saying and just interrupt you every single time that you speak and i think naturally we will always interrupt someone but we know when someone does it every day at work and you're like they're not listening to anything that i'm saying so those types of people and i think the base of my, my book is around self-awareness and i say in the first chapter about self-awareness your stuff because you don't know who you are you don't know where you're at and you don't really need to do what you need to do to be able to grow yeah, my book you know, has has, has a concept around leadership. You know, we've got a lot of parents listening to this. They'll be going to work and they'll have a boss that leads through love and they'll have a boss that leads through fear. So, yeah, it's it's got loads of questions, not answers. How can I have all the answers for a load of people that live around the world that I don't know anything about their jobs or their communities? So, as people read it and go, flipping out, I've got to really think about my own behaviour here.
0: I love, I love the fact that you talk about self-reflection and self-awareness. I think that's been one of my biggest takeaways from the journey i've been on as a teacher and then as a mum and now as doing my educational mentoring i think we're very very critical and very very quick particularly as i've noticed with my female students about when you're reflecting always thinking about the things that you haven't done what you haven't achieved why you can't be as good as the other girl in the class because you haven't got that you haven't done this. Now, This I, I call it comparisonitis, and it, I think it's the thief of joy, which we all know it is. But do you think that there is a difference between the way girls react and boys react in your experience with all the students that you've worked with? And do you think there's something we can do to help address that?
1: Yeah, I think there's a significant difference, to be honest. Um, I have to tell this story. My last year as a vice principal, and I say to people, what do you do on a Monday morning at work at half past eight? I say, oh, I'll get a coffee. I said, well, have you ever told 26 girls to get to a science lesson that are refusing to walk in? And you know, obviously working in South London, there were some really, really challenging kids with some very disadvantaged backgrounds. And I just remember 26 girls refusing to walk into a science lesson, telling me that science teachers crap and they don't want to go in. So I think um, if I go back to my PE teaching days, my style of teaching for girls was significantly different to boys. Um, I was softer, I was more gentle, I was more uh, more kind, more empathetic, um, I would change my body language significantly, the curriculum would be different, so I'd teach them, you know, I'd almost ask the girls what they want to do every term instead of telling them what they want to do. You know, we've got a lot of uh, body image stuff for teenage years, I did my dissertation on it actually, girls underperformance in peer and lack of participation from 14 to 16, so I've got a lot of experience of that. Whereas the, the the good boys groups, for me, so you can like tell them to do a warm up, and they're like racing each other, and you know it's ultra competitive. And again, please don't think I'm being generalising that every boy is like that and every girl is like that. But yeah, majorly significant difference. And and um, if I apply this to adults, and please don't think that I'm being you know gender biased here, but if I mentor a woman, often they just want to be listened to man they want to be told what to do Right. so i don't want to come off this call going steve Sallis said this and that means it's true right And uh it's not about that but honestly I've, I've been doing this job a long time if there was a straw poll of my experiences with 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 genders then then that would be you know significant to my work
0: i'm going to preface this again by saying absolutely true there's we're not trying to put all girls and, bo- and all boys and all women no. and men in, in categories like that, but I think we cannot deny the facts that girls do fear away and shy away from STEM subjects. There is a big issue in body image. There is a big problem with body confidence with young girls, and I think the fact that you've seen that firsthand in schools and in the work that you do is important to highlight. And once, and we can have conversations like this, and I think that's important. But what I would love for people to do once they've heard it from from teachers from people in there as people as vice principals what can we do to solve it i think that's my biggest hope with the mission of this podcast is to give people proper strategies to pick up and go out and try and make even if it's one small change one small comment one way of role modeling why stem is not just for boys that would be something that i think elevate is striving
1: to achieve really. And then do you know what? I can't sit here and say there is an answer because that would be foolish. It's almost a process. Like first instance is being mindful of it. Is there a difference between your son and daughter? And then that self-awareness to say is there a difference is is then identifying whether there is or there isn't a difference. And if you know it could be the same as two boys. Let's look at two boys. You've got two boys are two different human beings with two different sets of needs. So yeah, I'm really reluctant to say do X and Y. What you need to be doing is mindful of, are you as a parent giving your kids the super strengths to be able to go and live a happy life? And are you going to remind the parents about what they want to do? I say, well, what's your favourite hobby? The kid might say, gaming. OK, do you think you can go and get paid for gaming? Well, let me just clarify. Kids now are on a quarter of a million pound a year as a gamer. Now, we've got to be really careful as parents and say, no, you can't be a gamer. Well, no, you can, because there's loads of kids that are being a gamer on a quarter of a million pounds a year. The challenge for the kids, though, and the education for the kids is, you do realise that if you want to be a gamer, you're not competing against a kid in London, you're competing against a kid in New York, a kid in Nairobi, a kid in Africa, a kid in Canada, a kid in Asia. We've got to be really respectful that, you know, how many people hate their job, right? This is weird. How many adults hate their job? And then what, we're just going to keep teaching children to hate their job? That is the weirdest thing ever.
0: Totally, I hundred percent agree with you. Finding that passion, finding that dream, and and going for it.
1: Yeah, can you get paid for your hobby? Basically, you know, and I don't care. Wherever anyone says that I'm wrong, you can definitely get paid for your hobby. Right, just got to find out how you get paid for it.
0: That's such a nice way to think about it, and I love the phrase. I know we both talk about our one-liners, but it takes a village, right? And I think you and I both agree that with that, and that's one of the reasons we've come together today. We feel it's really relevant, especially for tween and teen years, because despite parents giving it, even if those that are genuinely trying, a lot of teens and tweens want to push their parents away. Because, of course, why would they want to listen to mom and dad? Why? There's a lot of that going on. So I do feel teachers, educators, coaches, mentors can make a real influence in a child's development, either positively or negatively. But do you have any... Tips for parents who's, who want to take your advice, Steve, and want to take what you've written in your book and practice it, but their children just want to ignore them.
1: Well, get them to think about their future self. Get them to think about having a growth mindset. Get them to not giving them too much too soon. My dad, right, is the ultimate legend in the world. Dad, I used to say, can I have a tenner? he go, yeah, son, I'd love to give you a tenner. And I'd go, dad, you're so kind. And he'd go, there's the car keys, there's the bucket, and there's sponge. Now, I haven't yet met a teenager that doesn't like money. Next thing, what's going to motivate them very early in their life and, and make it like that. The next thing is, if my dad stopped me playing football because I was rude and he did it one Sunday, once in my childhood, I was crying all weekend because my dad took away what I loved. So, you know, in schools, we call it rewards and sanctions policy. You know, so let's make sure our sanctions are very clean and clear. But the key to, you know, motivation is rewards but then, you know, like, then you get false motivation because, you, you know, you're giving your kid loads of money for, you know, getting a C grade, when actually they maybe should be capable of getting an A grade. So, you know, they, they, yeah, what I mean is the school targets are an A, but then they get a C, and then we're still celebrating them actually devaluing themselves. So, again, I said today about perspective and context. I think motivation mm. to your kids is, is finding out what they want to do, get them to think about their future self a lot earlier, connect what they want to go and do with their life. You know, Someone emailed me on LinkedIn, Ramita, and said, oh, you can't tell kids what they want to do at 14. I go, well, I'll tell you what I can, because they're still knocking on my door at 28 and still don't know what they want to do. So I can definitely challenge kids at 14. And are they going to know it at 14? Of course they're not going to know it at 14, but at least we get them to think about it at 14.
0: So what do you think is the difference between drive and perseverance?
1: The speed. Perseverance is just repeat the same, but drive is the speed at which you do it.
0: <laughs> like that, I like that. And do you think that children that naturally have drive
1: are always going to outperform those children that actually have a lot of perseverance? Not necessarily, no. Because you could be driving in the wrong direction, can you? <laughs> yeah,
0: I'm having a crash
1: going too fast. Yeah. Or you could be doing a drive <laughs> where your mum and dad are telling you to drive. I just think perseverance, you know, listen, it's only my random perception of those two words. I think perseverance is a bit more repetition and drive is a bit more moving forward.
0: Yeah, nice. Thank you. The, one of the final questions I love to ask my guests before we sign off is something that they wish they knew and believed as a teen themselves, given what they know about life now.
1: Oh, my God. Right. I This is true. I got offered a job at Real Madrid, couldn't take it because I don't speak Spanish. Everybody, seriously, stop telling your kids to learn a language because the school curriculum says it. Tell your kids <laughs> to learn a language because it will get them a pound note in years to come.
0: That's a really interesting and really pointed point to end on. That's brilliant. And Steve, what's next for you? And if people listening to this wanted to gain more of your amazing insights, what would they do to get in touch or how would they get more information from wonderful Steve Salas?
1: Um well, my website is Solutions Mindset. um you can get my book from there as well, and then yeah what's what's next for me? Just gratitude every day, really?
0: Well, I think what you're doing is absolutely remarkable, and every single day you're touching lives of people and influencing them with your fantastic messages. So I think we should be applauding you and we need more Steve Alices in the world to create and help bring up that in our youngsters, really
1: Well, you're doing a great job as well, remember um and listen we're all on this bus and we're all trying to have a life which is fulfilling isn't it I mean, we want fulfillment and um hope and aspiration and and uh yeah that's not always easy with the world of instagram is it you know like i say it's, it's affirmational the more you say the more it's going to happen yes. so
0: yes watch this space um but thank you so much for your time today you've been absolutely brilliant to chat to i've really enjoyed you so everyone else listening solutionsmindset.com all linked in the show notes including his book uh get yourself a copy it's brilliant thanks so much for being here steve thank you And that's everything from us today. Thank you to all of you for joining in and being part of these very important conversations. I hope you will continue to support our cause by sharing the podcast to raise awareness with others. If you get a moment and could rate and review the podcast, I would also be hugely grateful. I'd like to extend a very big thank you to Ryan Prestepino from The Pine Studios for all the hard work that he does to help me bring this podcast to all of you. Until next time, stay well and speak soon. Bye for now.